Today we continue our Advent Sermon series, The Gospel Lights Tour, as we tour the metaphorical homes of each gospel writer to see how they are preparing for the coming of Christ. Last week we toured Mark's austere home, the the home that uh, didn't decorate for Christmas. But we also learned about his call to pause, to take a breath, to hope and prepare for Christ's coming. Today we meet Matthew and we take a tour of his metaphorical home, his gospel. Now Matthew writes a little later than Mark, and we know this because he was obviously inspired by his gospel, uh, given that Matthew includes uh, just about 90% of Mark's gospel in his own. It's almost as if he had a copy of Mark's gospel as he was there writing his own. Uh, A New Testament scholar once envisioned how each gospel writer begins their saga of Jesus by trying to put it to music, a a gospel soundtrack, if you will. Mark, they said, begins with a marching band drum corps, uh, the beating of a drum, boom, 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 noting how Mark's Jesus is in a rush because God's kingdom has come near. Luke, as we'll see next week, sounds like a Broadway musical where the action stops uh, numerous times so uh, characters can break into heartfelt song. John's gospel sounds sort of space age, uh, a kind of experimental music in his philosophical rendering of God's word becoming flesh and dwelling with us. But what about Matthew? Matthew's gospel begins with the creaking sound of rocking chairs. Why? Because it's the sound of nostalgia. It's reminiscent of a grandparent telling their progeny stories about their family while sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair. Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' genealogy, his family tree, which we heard in our first lesson. And I think our liturgist, Sandra, deserves a gold, a gold star for uh, going through all those names. We skipped over some of the harder-to-pronounce to names, even. Uh, So we haven't even entered Matthew's home yet, but from his driveway, we can tell that he is having a big, raucous family reunion inside. This genealogy is fascinating, and it could easily merit a whole sermon on its own. But overall, the point is that Matthew wanted to show that what God is doing in and through Christ is deeply connected to God's covenant story. It's not something new but rather the fulfillment of everything that has been so far. So now we continue our story in the second lesson as we hear the story of Jesus' birth according to Matthew and some of the events that immediately follow. I invite you to listen now with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word from the first chapter of Matthew's gospel beginning with the 18th verse. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. 
When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son. And he named him Jesus. Let's pause here. As we near Matthew's house, we notice a home without Christmas lights or big decoration. There isn't any decor that that exudes joy and wonder. To be clear, Matthew is decorated for Christmas, but just barely. All there is to be seen is a simple nativity out front. It's a nativity without a manger or animals or shepherds. It's just Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. The magi and or, uh, wise men will come later. In fact, if you noticed in the reading, Jesus' birth isn't given a whole lot of fanfare. It's almost described, uh, in, in, um, described as an aside. Oh yeah, she did uh, uh, bear a son and they named him Jesus. This is why our telling of the Christmas story in church and the one you'll see on Christmas Eve when we do the pageant, it's primarily told through Luke's gospel, which we'll uh, address next week. In Matthew's story, though, Joseph is the headliner. He's the main character in Matthew's story. Why is that? It's because of the genealogy. Matthew connects Jesus to all these giants of the Hebrew scriptures and of God's covenant, showing that the story of Jesus really begins and is intimately connected with the Old Testament. How is Jesus connected to all these people? Through his father, Joseph, and his family tree, which is the very family line of David. Part of the Old Testament prophecy was that the Messiah would restore David's monarchy and so therefore would come from David's family line. This is why Joseph, as a character, takes center stage in Matthew. In Luke, Mary is the lead character in her role as the God-bearer. But Matthew focuses and chooses to focus on Joseph and his deliberation and reflection on what to many would certainly have seemed to be a scandalous pregnancy. Jesus' birth isn't given a whole lot of attention by Matthew, and that's because Matthew puts much more attention to how the world will respond to this newborn king. In fact, Matthew uses a device here for the first time that he'll use several times throughout his gospel. And it's, the device is this. Something big happens, and then there's a twofold reaction to that event. There's a positive reaction and a negative one. After Jesus' birth, he's visited by the Magi, who we also call the wise men or kings or astrologers, folks from the east. They come to pay homage to this new king, giving him gifts suitable for a king. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. This is the positive reaction to the the birth of Jesus. It's notable in Matthew's gospel that Gentiles, or outsiders, are the first witnesses to the Christ child. They're the first to name him as king. The negative reaction, though, belongs to King Herod, the Rome-approved Jewish leader of Judea. And Herod feels threatened by the birth of this promised king, and he responds horrifically. I hate to say this, but we have to continue the story. Uh, We have to jump ahead to chapter 2, starting with the 13th verse, to get this negative reaction. Now after they, that is the wise men, had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. A reluctant thanks be to God is is, uh, certainly an order after that text, Uh, a hesitant one. Uh, Friends, nostalgia is a powerful thing, especially in storytelling. When a story can drum up embellished feelings from our past, we're sucked into it. We want more. We need more from the story. Do we have any Star Wars fans in the, in the congregation, I'm sure we do. I was, I was really su- stunned that, that most um, movie critics talked about the new Star Wars movies, the ones that have come out the last few years, and how they were so successful because they created a sense of nostalgia in, in viewers. They reminded the audience of the original three movies. Now, the characters and storylines, uh, they almost paralleled one another. Sure, the names and situations changed, but the story really didn't. It's, it's more the continuing and, and onward path of the same story going forward. It, to me, there's a lot of this kind of nostalgia in Matthew's telling of Christ's birth. Jesus' father, Joseph, reminds us of the Joseph in the story of Genesis. Remember Joseph the dreamer? Joseph has a dream that his family, that he and his family and, and their people needed to go down to Egypt in order to survive a famine. Well, here's this Joseph, and this Joseph also dreams. And what does he dream? That he and his growing family need to flee and take refuge in Egypt to avoid certain demise. In a similar way, Jesus is supposed to remind us of Moses, both born into a world of terror, fear, and the slaughter of Hebrew infants. A big theme of Matthew's portrait of Jesus is being a sort of second Moses. And it all begins in his infancy as the story returns to Egypt. Herod's obsessive fear of losing power causes him to respond just like Pharaoh with slaughter. An unthinkable, horrific act. So as Joseph is tipped off about Herod in a dream, the Holy Family flees. Like Moses in a basket, Mary and Joseph take their newborn son and take refuge in Egypt. Jesus and his family become essentially refugees, fleeing violence and certain demise from a tyrant fearful of losing power. In addition to nostalgia and really a reprise of the great story of the redemption of God's people, we start to see another theme emerge. Now, Matthew doesn't try to sugarcoat the world in his gospel. I think that seems pretty clear. As we go back to his home and look at his front lawn, we notice that in addition to the simple nativity, we also see signs addressing things going on in our world. We see signs like, hate has no home here, and no matter where you are from, we're glad you're our neighbor. In this time of year, many try to forget that there are problems in the world. 
We try to drown them out with festive music and lights. I think Matthew's gospel serves as a sort of counterpoint to this. He'd be the guy at the Christmas party reminding the other guests who are all trying to enjoy themselves of the various problems right now in the world. I think also Matthew's gospel speaks to those uh, for whom this time of year isn't merry and joyous and bright. But I think he also helps everyone see a bigger picture, to see a world that's not perfect, but rather a world that's in chaos and division, to see a world that desperately needs peace. As I said, Matthew's world is a brutal place, but this is the world that our Savior is born into. He's born into this world to be the Prince of Peace. He's born into this dangerous, scary world that he might save and redeem it. The image, the the name that Matthew uses to talk about the Christ child is Emmanuel. God is with us. Matthew's Jesus isn't born on a silent, starry night. Matthew's Jesus is born into a scary, violent, scandalous mess of a world. But this is precisely the world that Emmanuel, that God is with us, enters. God chooses to enter into our darkness to bring light. God chooses to enter into our chaos and violence to bring peace. God is with us in the crisis, in the storm, in the chaos. And this God, Emmanuel, promises to bring peace to it all. If, God is, or if Christ is God is with us, Emmanuel... What are we to fear? A final theme of Matthew's gospel I think is worth noting here is is, uh, as we discern how we are to live into the peace of Christ. Uh, The final theme is how do we we live into this peace that Christ will bring? As I shared earlier, Matthew is really writing a second edition of Mark. Mark. And he's writing it for a people who are a little further removed from the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, but people who are still trying to figure out how to live as disciples of Christ. So really, discipleship emerges as a key theme in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's Jesus teaches much more, and there's a whole lot more attention to the disciples, uh, them as people, but also how they live out Jesus' teachings, and importantly, accountability for how they act uh, and how they they carry themselves as uh, folks who bear the ministry of Christ. So if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, then he calls all of us as disciples to be agents and ambassadors of this peace. It really starts with us. How we act and how we respond as disciples matters. In the season of Advent, where we prepare where we prepare for Christ's once and future coming, this then becomes a time of, uh, to hope and watch for peace to come on earth. But it's also a time, friends, to live into this peace, to become ambassadors and practitioners of this peace, even in the midst of a chaotic and violent world. You may remember last month we honored the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day with the end of World War I. There's a beautiful story from World War I during the very first Christmas of the war in 1914. The story was depicted in a French film a while back entitled Joyeux Noël. On the front lines of one of the most horrific wars in human history, 
An informal truce broke out between the troops on Christmas Eve. By some reports, as many as 100,000 troops participated. Still early in the war, there were widespread calls for peace. Everything from an open Christmas letter from women in Britain to uh, the, the people in Germany, to Pope Benedict XV pleading with warring nations that, that the guns may fall silent at least upon the night the angels sang. None of these attempts swayed the leaders of of the warring nations. But what they did sway were the troops who were on the front lines. These folks acted on their own, and through some reports, they acted even against the orders from their commanders. In St. Yvonne, German troops began placing candles on their trenches and making makeshift Christmas trees, eventually singing together Christmas carols and shouting Christmas greetings to the other side. The British responded with their own greetings and carols, and eventually they met in between the two trenches in what was known as no man's land. They met in this this, uh, space in the middle and began to sing carols together. They joined in fellowship. They exchanged gifts with one another, even had a few breakout games of soccer, I understand. Scottish veteran Alfred Anderson later noted that it was a short peace in a terrible war. In this moment, even if it was just for a moment, the coming of the Prince of Peace beckoned people to live into Christ's peace in a world of violence. And that's what we're called to do. Now, living into this peace for us today can mean a number of different things. It could mean reconciling with an estranged friend or loved one. It could mean reconnecting with that colleague or neighbor with whom you stopped talking due to ideological or other differences. Matthew's Jesus, Matthew's Prince of Peace, calls us to live into this peace together. Matthew's home doesn't shy away from the realities of our broken world. His Jesus is born into a chaotic and violent world as Emmanuel, but also as the Prince of Peace. As we continue onward to Bethlehem, may we seek, may we strive to be ambassadors, but also practitioners of Christ's peace. Not living in fear because Emmanuel, God is with us, has come. Friends, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace and goodwill to all. Amen.